please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Christian, if you are tired, Christian, if you are discouraged, if you wrestle with doubt and depression on nearly a daily basis, Christian, if you feel persecuted and attacked in this life, Christian, if you are tired of, of being a baby Christian, you want to go on to maturity in Jesus, Christian, if that is you, Hebrews is for you. God has much good for our souls as we study these next 13 chapters together over the next calendar year. And so let's begin today by reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, though we will focus our study on verses 1 to 3. The writer of Hebrews says this, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. My friends, Hebrews was written for weak and discouraged Christians. And I think that this is why I like it as much as I do, because I am often a weak and discouraged Christian. This book was likely written initially in a primary way for Jewish converts to Christianity. Men and women who converted from Judaism to Christianity, even as John, as we heard read this morning, promised that would happen, met Jews converting to Christianity, but now because of the hardship of suffering and because of the pain of life and the, the difficulty of faith, these men and women are tempted to return to their old way of life. They're tempted to quit. They're tempted to give up and to say that their, their old way of life before Jesus was better and easier than their new way of life with Jesus. The, the Christian men and women that this sermon was initially written to and read aloud to were Christians who were feeling deep, deep discouragement. Listen, if you were walking into church in the first century with one of these original recipients, and as you walked in, you said, happy Sunday, how are you today? And if you had time to push beyond their, their perfunctory response, as we all say, oh, I'm fine today. If you had time to push past that, that first response, you would have encountered men and women who were tired in their faith. 
tired and seriously tempted to throw in the towel on church and to throw in the towel on fellowship group and to throw in the towel on Jesus himself. If you met one of these original readers in church on a Sunday morning, you would observe that during the singing, their mouths are barely moving, if at all. They're not lifting their hands, certainly not in confidence and joy. If they are, they're they're barely lifting them in weakness and in desperation. You you would probably hear them sniffling throughout the sermon and, and reaching into their purse to pull out tissues to wipe away their tears. At the end of the gathering, when the time of prayer and ministry happens, you would probably expect them to to quickly raise their hand, but they probably would not because they are too tired and too discouraged and too doubtful and too frustrated with life and even with God himself to even do that. These Christians were heavy-hearted and deeply discouraged. If you were there with the original audience after the gathering when everybody goes out to cheerfully enjoy coffee and cookies together, you might walk by a group standing in the corner and you might hear the words said, it was just so much easier before I became a Christian. Or someone else say, yeah, I didn't think Christianity would be this hard. Or you might hear someone else say, have you noticed that church is smaller recently? People have have fallen away. Someone else might say, yeah, I saw Abraham in the market last week and he said that he's been attending the synagogue again and that the familiarity of it just feels so good. And someone else might say, yeah, I was thinking about going with him today. I just don't know how much longer I can keep doing this church thing. Hebrews was written for people who are wondering if they have what it takes to keep going in the Christian life. People who are are probably looking for some extra help in their Christian walk. Maybe they need a new revelation from God, something extra to help them. Maybe they need a new Christian conference to hype them up. Maybe they need a new song to drop on Spotify to encourage their souls. Maybe they need more Christian therapy or even to increase their meds. Maybe they they feel like they just need to be left alone. And without all these things, they're just beginning to feel like their Christian future is bleak. But Redeemer family, it is to these Christians, it is to them that the writer of Hebrews, who I believe to be their pastor, writing a Sunday sermon to them from a distance, it is to his church family that he writes and communicates in these moments that there is nothing better than Jesus. They, they in fact, do not need a new revelation. They don't need a new conference or a new worship song or to listen to their favorite preacher online. No, there's nothing that they need and there is nothing that we need more than Jesus. Jesus is better. He is better than any solution that we could find to any of these problems. And my friends, that really is the entire message of Hebrews and what it is about. And it's certainly what these first four verses are about. Jesus is better. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. Jesus is a better word than has ever been spoken. Jesus is a better word than has ever, ever been spoken. And we have three points. The voice of God, the radiance of Jesus, and the permanence of our hope. 
Let's jump in to point number one, the voice of God. Look with me at verse one. The writer says, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, he says, technically in the original Greek, those words long ago mean a long time ago. Previously to this point, in the past, before, the author is saying that previous to the time that he and the listeners are now in, God had spoken before. And my friends, that should not surprise us because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that one of the most foundational truths that we should know about God is that he is a speaking God. He speaks, he is not silent. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he create the heavens and the earth? He said, let there be light. He spoke, he he used words. And listen, not only do his words have creative power, no, his words also have relational equity and worth. Since, Since the very beginning, God has used his words to be in relationship with his people. Right? He spoke with Adam and Eve. He spoke with Noah. He spoke with Abraham and Sarah. He spoke with David and Solomon and the prophets. Since long ago, God has been a speaking God. Friends, that should so encourage us this morning. God's not silent. He's not mute. He is not relationally indifferent towards us. God is not agnostic towards the people that he's made, meaning he did not create us and then leave us on our own. No, God made us and then immediately enters into a personal and conversational relationship with us. It would not be that way if he did not like us. If God did not love us, he would remain silent. We you and I, we often don't speak to the people that we don't like, right? If, if we're mad at someone, we don't talk to them. We, we cut them off. We delete their contact. We ghost them. We give them the silent treatment. We, we stop speaking so that that relationship will wither and die. But that's not what God has done. Even when humanity fell into rebellion and sin, praise God, he kept speaking. He kept communicating the The voice of God is the most constant thing in the universe. And you and I should be eternally grateful for it. And it's not just that he has spoken. He has spoken, it says, in many ways. Meaning that God has not just spoken one word or one sentence and then left it to that. No, he has spoken at many times and in many ways. That... That shows how intentional God is towards his people to be heard by us. He wants to be heard. He doesn't want us to miss out on what he is saying. Have you ever been watching the TV and then in the middle of the show, someone in the room accidentally sits on the remote and hits the mute button and you can't hear what's going on in the show and and so you miss it and then for the rest of the show, you're completely lost. You ever had that? Or maybe you're at school and they give an announcement, but you were not there for the announcement, and then they don't follow it up with an email or a social media post or a text message, and you're completely lost. Friends, God's not that way. 
Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He has spoken at many times, and in many ways. Why? Because he really, 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 really wants to be heard. And he wants the good news of his grace and mercy to be heard and received and celebrated by the people that he has made. And so he speaks, and church, he keeps on speaking. And he speaks in many different ways. He speaks through the prophets, not just once through one man, but through many men and women. He, he speaks through narrative. He speaks through poetry. He speaks through the law. He speaks through the prophetic words of comfort. He speaks through the prophetic words of warning and judgment, and he speaks through prophetic words of hope. Friends, other than the fact that God exists, there are few things that we should care about as much or that are as important to our souls as knowing and believing that he speaks. And listen, the writer of this letter wants us to know this. Throughout the entire book of Hebrews, the writer speaks of how God is always speaking to us. Throughout these 13 chapters, the writer speaks of God's voice, of God speaking, of what God says, of what God testifies, of what God proclaims, of what God calls or swears or warns or promises or the oaths that he makes. It's actually very fascinating to, to study this book. The, the writer of Hebrews uses a whole lot of Old Testament texts. But it's, it's very specific, the way that he references them. It's different from other New Testament writers who talk a whole lot about Old Testament texts as well. But Paul and, and Peter, they often say, as it is written, or when it was written in the past. But that's not what he says. He says, as God says. He says, as he records Old Testament scripture, as it is spoken, or as it is sworn, as it is testified somewhere. The writer sees God's word, even in the Old Testament, as living and active. The word is not dead. He is not silent. This is a book that is actively speaking to us every day, even in this moment right now. And the writer of Hebrews wants you, Christian, to know this for your strength. Hebrews chapter 6, he says that the, the words of God, which are trustworthy, are to be an anchor for your soul. They are to be a foundation for your, your feet in the storms of life. Christian, do you believe that God's word is an anchor for your soul? Do you believe that this book is the treasure of greatest value? Do you believe that when God speaks, everything else in your life should be muted in comparison to him? Do you love this book? Do you pay, as he's going to command us to do, pay close attention to it? Listen, even the author himself, through his own preaching, he calls this a word of exhortation. He believes, even as, as Paul and Timothy believed, that Sunday morning preaching is God speaking. It's God speaking. Do you believe that when you come in on a Sunday morning? Friends, it is great news that the God of this universe speaks. But the writer of Hebrews has concern that the people of God do not ignore or reject or become overly familiar with God's word. We must pay close attention to the voice of God, which is what Hebrews is for. God is speaking. That brings us to our second point, which is this, the radiance of 
Jesus. And now we get to do this morning what really the writer of Hebrews is excited to do himself. Because as much as he wants to celebrate the fact that God has spoken at many times in many ways, the writer of Hebrews really wants to even more so to celebrate the fact that God has now spoken in a new and in a better way. Look at verse 2. It says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And in using the word but there, he is setting up an intentional contrast. He's, He's comparing what happened long ago to what has now happened through the son. And listen, in turning so quickly to the son, to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews really is showing his cards for us today. He's, he's laying out the plan for the, the sermon that he is about to preach. In other words, what is the main idea of this sermon? Um, Jesus. It's Jesus. The main idea of this first century sermon is that Jesus is better than everything else and that your weary heart and my weary heart need nothing more than more of him. In, in these first verses, the, the writer of Hebrews He really just kind of lay out the program for the remainder of the book. And that program is to consider Jesus, to pay close attention to Jesus. That's the agenda that is set before us. And it begins right here in verses 2 to 3. It says that Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, it, it begins here. The writer gives us seven truths about Jesus, seven truths about Jesus that should make our hearts explode in wonder and worship. And so, first of all, look at verse two. It says that Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. The author wants us to know that God has now changed the mode of speaking. He has spoken to us, again, not by just another prophet like Moses or Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, but he has spoken to us by the Son of God who is the heir of all things. What does that mean? Well, it speaks of Jesus' divine sonship. He is the eternal Son of God, equal with God, equally worthy of praise with God. What what does it mean that he is the heir of all things? It means that according to Psalm 2, which will be quoted in just a few verses, it means that God the Father has looked at God the Son and said that he has made all things through the Son and for the Son. It means that Jesus, the Son of God, is the anointed one and that the nations are his inheritance. The world itself belongs to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 even says that you and I, Christians, are his inheritance. That's what it means that Jesus is the the heir of all things. Colossians chapter 1 says all things were not just created through him or by his power, although we'll consider that in just a moment, but Colossians chapter 1 says that they were also created for him, meaning all things in this world belong to King Jesus. He is the heir apparent. He is the royal one. He holds the place of supreme honor and privilege. And friends, that should thrill our souls as well. Why? 
Because if this world was made to be an inheritance of God the Son, my friend, if you were created to be the inheritance of God the Son, then you have a purpose and a worth. We, we are a part of something far more glorious than anything else in this universe. Friend, you belong to Jesus. The heir of all things sees you, brother, sister, as his treasured possession. He is the inheritor of all things. Second thing the author shows us about Jesus, it says, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This Jesus that we are called to pay close attention to and to consider together, this Jesus is not just the recipient of creation as an heir, but he's the actual cause of creation. When scripture says in various places and in various ways that the world was created through and by God the Son, it is saying that God's will to create a universe, it was brought about through the intentional power of the Son. In, in, in the Gospel of John, John says of Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. This is who Jesus is. So, so we don't know exactly how this all went down, but it all, it's almost like God the Father was the commissioner of this work of creation. He desired this extraordinary work of power to come about, and the Son was commissioned to do it. It was, it was Jesus who was the designer and the builder of creation. And so, friends, consider what power Jesus has. Consider what skill and what artistic ability. And he did it all ex nihilo. He did it out of nothing by simply speaking words of power. This is divine power and control on ultimate display. But friends, that's not all. God has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world and now the third and fourth thing that the writer shows us he says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now those two truths are, are closely connected but they are different at the same time. To speak of Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God is to speak of him as the source of God's glory. God, God's glory radiates through Jesus. And, and to radiate is, is different from simply reflecting the glory, right? R. Kent Hughes talks about how the sun and the moon are different. The, the moon reflects light, but the sun radiates light. Jesus does not merely reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. It is his brilliance that we see. Friends, consider that. Jesus is the glory of Yahweh. The God that we studied in the book of Exodus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. We talk about his glory all the time. What is it? It's his brilliance. It's his beauty. It's his holiness. It's his perfect character. It's his excellencies and all of his attributes. And listen, all of it, all of it is seen in the face of Jesus. Even as we consider the life of Jesus, even as you look at baby Jesus in the manger or, or consider 
the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple with his parents, or even as you consider Jesus walking down dusty roads with his disciples, or talking to the woman at the well, or breaking bread with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, as you consider those things, you're seeing the glory of God on display. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the shining presence of the living God. But he is not only the radiance. He is also the exact imprint. And the writer of Hebrews really does begin to dip into deep Trinitarian truths in how he says this. In the same way that John in chapter, John chapter 1 says that the word, which is Christ, was with God and at the same time was God, making him the same and yet distinct from the Father. So, so Jesus here, according to the writer, is the radiance of God. He, he is God and he is his glory, but he is also distinct from God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. So when you see those words, the exact imprint, what you are supposed to think of is a coin with an image stamped upon it. The image is exactly the same as the mold, but they are, are distinct. When you look at one, you know what the other is like. It's the exact imprint of his nature, but yet they are distinct. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God himself in all of his glory, but yet we are seeing a different person than God. One God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is glorious. Jesus is the radiance of God and the exact imprint. But friends, there's even more. And we, we can consider the remaining three attributes given here as we turn to our third point this morning. So, so we have already considered the voice of God. We have considered the radiance of Jesus. And now point number three, the permanence of our hope. We should almost, we should almost begin to tremble when we read these verses and when we consider where we know the writer is going to take us. The writer of Hebrews wants to encourage and, and strengthen tired and discouraged Christians, he wants to hold up our faith, and, and the way that he does that is through showing us Jesus. But he is not going to strengthen us just by showing the creative power of Jesus. He's going to strengthen us by showing the creative power and the sacrificial love of Jesus. What he wants us to be strengthened by is not just cosmic power, but personal love. And friends, we begin to see that as we study these last three attributes together. Consider the fifth thing that is said about the Son. The writer says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That word upholds, it's a very active word. It means to sustain. It means to keep going. It means that God did not just speak a word in the past to create the world and then step back. It means that God is right now actively holding it all together, sustaining it by the word of his power. Do you think about this? The sun is shining this morning because Jesus is saying, sun, shine. The snow fell yesterday and not a single flake more than planned because Jesus said, I want this amount of flakes to fall on Newark, Delaware. Right now in your seat, you're breathing in, out, in, out. Why? Because Jesus is enabling you to do that unconsciously. Right now, Jesus is speaking to every heart in this room. 
beat. Okay, beat again. Okay, beat again. And he's been doing that for every one of us since the day that we were born. Colossians chapter 1 says that in Jesus, all things hold together. And guess what? This Jesus that we're talking about, he's not fatigued by the work that he's doing. He's not struggling to keep it all going. He's he's doing it by the word of his power. He speaks and hearts beat. He speaks and suns rise. He speaks and your garden grows food. He speaks and your body later digests that food. He speaks and all of life continues to grow and develop and unfold. And the implication of this, listen, is that if he stopped to stop speaking even for a millisecond, it would all cease to exist. That's what he's doing for us right now. He's, he's, he's willing us to exist, and he's doing it with ease. Listen, when I was in high school and in college, I always loved to have strength competitions with some of my friends. We liked to prove who was stronger than the other. And so one of the games that we regularly played and involved a hand gripper like this. And so we would take this gripper and we would take a penny and then we would take a stopwatch and we put the penny behind, between the two handles and we would hold it out and we'd hit go and we'd see who could hold it longer. But the second the penny dropped, you're done. It's harder than it looks. Some of us could go 30 seconds, some of us could go 60 or maybe a minute and a half or two minutes, but it was hard. We're we're sweating, we're screaming, we're like contorting our bodies, trying to keep it afloat, but we all failed. The penny dropped every single time. Even if you lost focus for a split second, it would be over. Friends, consider how different it is for Jesus, the Son of God. He's not screaming. He's not sweating. He's not struggling in the least. He is speaking the entire universe into existence and he's doing it with ease because of how divine he is. He upholds the universe by the word of his power and it never drops. And if that was not amazing enough, look at what it says next. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And now listen, Redeemer, listen. It says, after making purification for sins. What a phrase. What a phrase to consider. The purification for sins. The writer of Hebrews is gonna talk a lot about purification, purification of our bodies, purification of our souls, purification of our consciences, because we are a sin-sick and sin-broken people. So much of the weariness of our hearts, and so much of the discouragement that we feel in our Christian discipleship, it comes from shame and it comes from not feeling purified redeemer family we will be weak and discouraged christians if we spend more time considering our sinfulness than the purifying work of jesus in the gospel we shouldn't ignore sin we must not ignore sin we we need to talk about it we must consider our need for god's grace but we must move very quickly beyond our sin towards the solution to our sin 
The, the, the way that God has spoken in the past through the prophets in many times and in many ways, the, the old covenant sacrificial system, the law, all of it was good. It was very good, but it was temporary. It was incomplete, and it always led to condemnation and greater guilt. But now, a greater work of purification has been done, and the writer of Hebrews speaks of it as complete. Look at it. He says, after making purification for sins, it's already been done. It's in the past. And listen, not only has has it been done in the past it's been completed in the past and that leads us to our seventh characteristic Jesus the son of God the heir of all things after making purification for sins it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high the the, the Jesus that we're going to consider for these 13 chapters together He is a greater prophet than all of the Old Testament prophets he speaks a better word His word is the fulfillment of all their words. He is a better king because he is anointed by the Father to rule over all and to have possession of all things. But listen, he is also a much, much better high priest because unlike Aaron and all of the priesthood who could never sit down in the tabernacle or the temple. They could never sit because the work of making atonement for the sins of the people, the work of sacrificing animal after animal and shedding blood upon blood, the work was never done. So they had to remain standing at all times. But not this high priest. This high priest sat down because the work was complete. This one who is the the heir and the creator and the radiance and the image and the sustainer and the purifier, he sat down. Because even as he hung on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin, he declared, it is finished. The work of atonement is done. Friends, consider this work of atonement. Me me and my friends can't hold a penny up for, for two minutes But Jesus upholds the universe with ease. He speaks all of creation into being. He wills every heart to beat and every lung to breathe. And he does it with ease. And so consider this with me. The creator and the sustainer spoke this world into existence. And then he willingly entered into this world that he was willing to exist. He entered into a created world that he could have ended at any moment. It could have just disappeared and he and the Father and the Spirit would have been perfectly fine. So consider, consider his patience and his love. Consider his patience to grow up in and to live in this this sin-sick world for 33 years, enduring pain and sorrow and the sins of other people. But he kept speaking it into existence. He kept at it. Consider when he was betrayed by Judas. He kept speaking speaking his heart to beat. Consider how Jesus did not stop speaking this world into existence when the high priest and the Sanhedrin began to spit on him and kick him and beat him. Jesus did not open his mouth in opposition to that betrayal and crucifixion. Isaiah says that he was like a sheep led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. He was silent visibly, but listen, that does not mean that he was not speaking. No, quite the opposite. In his great love, he continued to speak the existence of this world and even those who would later crucify him on that cross. 
I can't hold a penny for a minute. And he hung on that cross for six excruciating hours. And every second of those six hours, if he stopped, if he chose to stop speaking this universe into existence, the pain surging through his body would have gone away like that. But he hung there moment after moment after moment. And with a word, he could have called legions of angels to come down and rescue him, but he didn't. He kept speaking this world into existence. He kept speaking the wood of that cross to hold together. He kept speaking the iron of those nails and the iron of that spearhead that pierced his side. He kept speaking it all into existence. Even the the nerves in his body, which were screaming in agony, he kept speaking it into existence. Why? Because he and his Father and the Spirit so loved the world. They so loved you that they together decided to redeem this world from sin and death. Not with the blood of bulls and, and goats, but with the blood of God himself. The blood of the inheritor of all things. The blood of the creator of all things. The the blood that flowed from the head and the side of the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The blood of God made purification for sins. And listen, that blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel or anything else in all creation. And it does a deeper and a more permanent and a more thoroughly purifying work than anything else in all creation. Friends, this is the permanence of our hope. The one who is the royal heir of all things died for you. He rose from the the dead for you. He conquered sin and death and has crushed Satan for you. And he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high for you. Consider him. The writer says, consider Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. If you're not a Christian here today, please consider Jesus. There's nothing else in this world that you need more than Jesus. Come and talk to one of us, and we would love to pray with you and to help you to understand what it means to put your faith in Jesus. But listen, if you're already a Christian, Redeemer Fellowship, consider Jesus. He is a better word than has ever been spoken. In your weariness, you do not need to look for additional revelation. You do not need a new conference or a new song or even, as we will see in chapter one, angelic beings to come to you themselves. You need Jesus. If Jesus is the culmination of all things, which he is, then the era that was introduced through his life, death, and resurrection, this is the final era of revelation. The the Holy Spirit himself is not giving us new revelation. He's just pointing back to Jesus. The the church is not to focus on a a new era or new focus. The the evangelism or obedience and, and service among the body, they're all important, but they're not the focus. We are to emphatically be Christ centered. Jesus focus. He is the eternal focus of the story that God has written since long ago and is still writing to completion. He is the ultimate and final word of God. We will spend eternity celebrating this better word, which is Jesus. 
And friend, you will live a stronger, happier, more peace-filled, more content, more courageous life for God's glory if you spend your life considering Jesus. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do what only he can do and help us to consider Jesus well together. Thank you for being a God who has spoken and thank you for being a God who has spoken most clearly through your own son. We desire to get to know him more. We desire to worship him more. We desire to submit to him more. We pray, dear God, that your spirit would enable us to see him more fully and to follow him more boldly. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. Amen.